independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. And to be really honest, I can really use your direct support during this time. Please, of course, do take care of yourself and your loved ones first. But if you are able to become a patron starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. And thank you so, so much to our existing patrons. It really helps a lot. Centralized systems that rely on really efficient supply chains are, are beautiful works of art but they also leave us very vulnerable. That was Lonnie Grafman, a professor of community-based design at Humboldt State University, the president of Apropedia Foundation, director of the awesome business competition and author of To Catch the Rain. Lonnie is really up to so many incredible projects, so I'm really excited for you to be inspired by everything that he's doing and what he calls practivism as a way to make this otherwise really challenging journey we're on energizing rather than draining and motivating rather than paralyzing. So stay tuned as we're about to explore why it's so important for charitable work to really be community-centered and community-driven how we can begin to rebuild more resilient systems with distributed resources rather than centralized ones, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Before I was an activist, I was a let's destroy everything and start over person. <laughs> I was an angry, homeless teen, just trying to break everything down. But that quickly, I realized that that wasn't working for me or for, for other people. So then I tried on activism, and I found it to be really important. But it didn't, it didn't really match my, my constitution. I found myself very drained at the end of the day. And what did that phase kind of look like for you? It looked a lot like yelling at people, telling them what not to do. So that, that was the type of activism that, that I was in, you know, signs, protests, very important things. And I'm really glad that people are working on it. But it was much more about telling people what not to do. And I realized that I'm just not, I'm not very good at that. I don't enjoy it. And so the, the switch came when I, when I started just making stuff that was that was better than the things I didn't want people doing. And then getting to work with other people, groups of people doing that, that were they were instead of saying, hey, don't burn coal, they were instead saying, here's how you build solar. Right? Instead of saying, hey, don't use those waste plastic bags, there's people saying, here's how you can make your own reusable bag. 
And I didn't have a name for it. So for years or over a decade, we were doing that work and I was doing it with groups of students and reporters would come and ask us, especially when we were in other countries doing it, they'd be like, well, what's your, this is great. What are you called? And I'd be like, oh, we're just people. And they're like, uh, you have to have a name. <laughs> and, and I was very idealistic at the time, which is kind of a trend in a lot of my stories. It takes me a while to figure out stuff. I was like, no, we're just people doing stuff. The names are exclusive. And reporters would be like, we can't tell this story without a name for your group. <laughs> and I still, it took me another like five or 10 years to come up with a name. I was in, I was in Southern Mexico working with Otros Mundos in, in Chiapas. And they are amazing activists. They do incredible work, stopping dams, protecting indigenous lands from takeover by energy companies. And we really wanted to work with them. I was trying to describe how not only do we not really partake in, in protests and activism, but in fact, it's against the Mexican constitution for foreigners to come and engage in those activities. And so I was giving, I was showing examples of the type of work that, that we've done. And, and in my work, we generally... Or, or I often am traveling with U.S. students, working together with, with students from whatever country we're in. And then all together, we work with a community that, that usually is making one or two dollars a day as per person as the average salary. So a community without financial resources and students from that local country and from the U.S. And, and so when we're doing this work, we have no idea what we're going to build. We just know we want to build things that are better. We come in and all together we create what the resources are and what the needs are. And we come up with a plan and, and, and we make it happen. And so I was describing this to, to Tanya from Otros Mundos. Finally, she stops me and she's like, oh, you're not activists. You're practivists. But in Spanish, so the, the word was practivistas. And finally it clicked. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what we are. <laughs> I love that. So we're at a time when there are a lot of social, ecological, and public health issues that can be really overwhelming to learn about. But a lot of us, upon hearing about these issues, we want to be a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in the so-called more developed countries, upon realizing our privilege, end up wanting to really help out communities regionally or abroad that are in need. Among your extensive past experiences, I know you've helped to co-create solutions with communities in the Dominican Republic. Public. Can you share a little about that and break down for us what the difference is between technical solutions and community solutions? I have had the incredible luck of getting to work in, in dozens of countries building, building technologies like these and engagements like these. And your question about the difference between a technological intervention and a community one is, is where I'd like to start. You know, I might be betraying too much about myself right now to future people I work with, but I wear technology as a Trojan horse, hopefully as like a positive Trojan horse. But I come in as like the solar expert or the rainwater expert, right? But I'm really not. Usually there's local people that know just as much and more than me. I teach those things at university and, and I definitely spend a lot of time working on them. But I don't really believe in any particular technology except for community. The, the only technology that I know is going to save us is, is community. And then the technological interventions, those just become the tools with which we're addressing that issue at the moment. But the way we, the way we choose the tool and the way we engage the tool is way more important than the actual tool. So the, the process by which we decide, is this going to be wind power or solar power or natural gas? Is this going to be an organic soil garden, hydroponics, aeroponics, 
aquaponics, the way we decide is this going to be open source medical device, 3D printed, the way we decide if we're going to be doing upcycling or recycling or downcycling, right? The way we decide those questions is way more important than what we actually decide. That said, I'm a total geek and I love what we actually end up implementing. <laughs> right. Do you think your approach is the norm that most other people, when coming into contact with these communities that they wish to help, do you think it's the norm for people to want to co-create with those communities? Or is it more of the norm where people have ideas in mind of what they want to do and they go in and they want to implement these things? I'm guessing that it's not the norm because of how many conversations I end up having about it. I do know that most of the large organizations seem to take the approach of we have a solution and we're going to implement it. And I think that that is not just a faux pas. I think that it's a recipe for failure. I do get to work with a lot of individuals that are taking this approach. The approach that, that recognizes that we don't know the answer. As an individual, we don't know the answer, especially for a community that is not the community that we are fully enmeshed in. You can't take a solution from, from the U.S. and just drop it into Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, right? You have to at least, at the very minimum, adapt it before you adopt it. That said, I think that once you realize that you don't know the, the final answer, it really frees you up to find deeper, more profound answers that will then be carried on later. If you're not going to be the one in that community running the organization for, for decades, then you better be co-creating a solution so that there's a bunch of other people involved. What are some examples of things that you learned going into these communities so that these are answers that you hadn't even thought of before, but came up as you were working with these people? There's hundreds. I really like the small surprises. They're my favorite. The big surprises are great too, but the small surprises always catch me from the side. Uh, so right now I'm co-authoring a book on solar power with Dr. Joshua Pearson. I have the joy of writing the stories section and mostly all of the stories involve either my failures or, or surprises. You had mentioned Dominican Republic. One year we're building solar power for an off-grid animal shelter. Y you want the saddest story? <laughs> sure, I guess. <laughs> I promise I promise to make it happier. <laughs> but first, but first We want the reality, so it's okay. <laughs> we can take it. So, we're building an off-grid animal shelter. They're right in the center of the city and the people running it have dedicated their lives to to stray animals, which is incredible. Their power goes out a lot and so we're building solar power for them. And we designed the system, we kind of come up with the model, we've collected all of their needs and, and their resources, and we make this model out of clay, and we're showing it to them, and they're like, oh, there's a problem. And so I should describe this model to you. It's, it's made out of modeling clay, and it has the dogs around the outside. In the center, there's this tower of solar that's pretty beautiful and shows off where the energy is going, like the solar panels and then the lights and the water and the refrigerator. And it kind of shows it off so that from a distance, you can be inspired about solar power. And so we, we show this and they're like, no, there, there's a problem. And I'm like, what is it? And they're like, well, the, the panels will be stolen. And I'm like, well, you, you have 50 pit bulls, right? Like, <laughs> like how, no, no, no one can get to the center. That's why we put them in the center, right? And he's like, he's like, no, they'll just poison them. And I realized just how naive I was, right? Like, I mean, it's not that I don't know that this type of stuff happens. It's just that I forgot in that moment. Mm 
Mm. We could have been doing more collaborative design, but he was always so busy with the dogs that we were trying to save him time, and that's why we made this model. And so we went back to the drawing board and we redesigned it so you can't tell it's solar at all. And that made him happier. But it, it, it reminded me that like I, I often don't know what the existing conditions are. I want to make that story a little bit happier and then also tell you how, how it contributed to even more to my naivety. He then moves out of the city to the country a year and a half after, after we build that system. And he loves his new spot. His neighbors won't poison the dogs. He's two hours from the city, but they only get three hours of power a day and they don't know which three hours. So we redesigned a, a new system. We, we cannibalized a lot of the old parts and we got to go build that system. We show up out there and he's like, oh, the power has been out for a week. So all the tools are dead. We're like, no problem. We'll put it on the ground and we'll, we'll build it. We'll put the solar on the ground first. We'll use that to power the tools and then we'll build the system. And I just thought it was the coolest, the, the coolest solar baller moment. But then that, that same year, we're working in a community called La Yuca. And La Yuca is the, the poorest urban barrio in the center of Santo Domingo. The rest of the poor barrios have been moved to the outside of the city. And this one has just continued to fight and hold on to the land and the, the homes that are theirs. The streets are about five and a half feet wide. You can touch both the walls as you walk them. And they have one area that all the kids play, which is called the play. That's a basketball court in front of the school. And they need solar power for the second story of their schoolroom because they have adult classes at night, adult literacy classes and gospel classes. And they don't, when the power goes out, there's no light and there's no fans and it is hot and sweaty. And so we're building solar power for the whole second floor. And we've learned from our previous experience with the animal shelter. And so we're designing together and we, we model it and we completely hide the solar so no one knows it's there. And at one of the community meetings, we had local designers working with us, but then we had an open community meeting and people are like, oh, no, 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 it could get stolen. We're like, yeah, well, that's why we hit it. They're like, no, instead, put it right out in front so everyone can see it. That way, when the one person who's a thief tries to steal it, everyone will be able to see them and stop them. Mm. And, and realizing that the community was that strong was really, was really inspiring. And it's, it's those surprises, the ones that, that make my brain grow the most, more than, <laughs> more than what type of solar panel we're using. Right. And really by co-creating these solutions with the communities, it's really giving more potential for these to be viable long-term solutions as well, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, I'm never going to be in a community forever. I've now gone back and seen a lot of projects that we've built. I mean, we've built, with the teams I work with, we've built over a thousand projects over the last 25 years. And, wow. and a lot of those are not functioning. So I try to find out why. And a lot of times it's a very normal reason that anything would have not been functioning. But other times it's completely because of my own, my own ego or arrogance or lack of insight. And so the more you work with the community group, I mean, Ideally, I become irrelevant, right? Like there's a lot of community groups I go back to now that only like four or five of the members really know who I am, right? Everyone else, they're like, who's like, why is this guy here? You know, <laughs> and that that's one of the ways I judge my su success. Also, like final presentations, how far back I get pushed out, you know, like um, mm -hmm. when people are doing trainings, that tells me, you know, how successful I was. The, the faster I become irrelevant, the better job I did. 
So I also want to point out that a lot of these community solutions are really about helping to distribute resources and empower these local communities to have stronger self-reliance. Your recent book, To Catch the Rain, which is free, by the way, to download at tocatchtherain.org, it empowers people to regain some of our own control over our access to water. What made you feel like this is an important know-how to openly share? First of all, I think that as communities, we have to figure out how to kind of take responsibility for all of our resources. And the more the more distributed our resources are, the more community engagement, the more regenerative they are, the more resilient they are, the more capacity we have to deal with emergencies like the one that we're in. The reason I started with water, there's 15 of those books I want to write, right? The first one was on water. This next one is on is on solar. The reason I started with water is is one, because we can see it. We engage with water. But two, it's just so vital, right? The, there's the law of threes from survivalism, right? You can go three weeks without food pretty easily, but you can only go three days without water. If you haven't, and I, and I hope for your listeners that they haven't ever had to go without clean water, but if you have, if you have to have spent time, maybe even just camping, if you've had to have spent time without clean water, you realize how quickly you need it and how vital it is. And it's incredible. We have this beautiful system of distribution in many countries of, of fairly clean water, and that's impressive. But when we get divorced from where that resource is, is coming from and going to, it makes it much easier to abuse that resource. For rich countries and for poor countries, resilience is becoming more and more important as we have more global climate weirding and, and also just such an unknown future. I live seven months a year. I'm in Northern California, and we have plenty of water. But also, in a natural disaster, we get cut off for a long time. And so the rainwater catchment systems we have become extra capacity for our neighbors and our, and our neighborhoods to have clean drinking water. I feel like what we don't think about enough is where, where does our water come from? So mm -hmm. I think we take for granted that we turn on the tap and fresh water is there for people who have access to that. We've been talking a lot about where our food comes from, but... I guess the reality is that a lot of times our water may be coming from places that are causing harm to wherever it's being taken from. So really draining freshwater ecosystems and things like that. It's a catastrophe out there where a lot of our water comes from. Yeah. Or even taking water from communities that have already been marginalized or indigenous communities. That is incredibly common. I mean, if you want to see the probably the most egregious example of that, it'd be Bolivia in 2000 when Bechtel bought the water rights to the, the country in this, the protest that happened after the water rights were privatized and rainwater catchment became illegal, at least a dozen people died in those protests. So water, water can be a very powerful community issue. And, right. and who controls the water for, for a lot of communities can become a very large political issue. I'm pretty sure I've heard before that in some places there are legal issues around harvesting your own rainwater. Are you aware of any legality issues around this? In the U.S., it's become more and more legal to, to catch your own rainwater. There are some states that were a little slow to, to adopt that, like Colorado that had the first rights of water issues, but they, they seem to, to fix those. And I'm not a lawyer at all. But for small scale systems like the type that are in the book, most places are, are now legal. There's still a lot of legal issues if you want to do massive groundwork. So if you're trying to store enough water for 150 people for the whole year and you're building a lagoon, right, then you have an issue with the lagoon building, not the catching the water. <laughs> <laughs> right. So 
As we're recording this episode, we're currently in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And to me personally, it's really revealed how vulnerable we are when we're reliant on centralized and monopolized systems. But what do you think this epidemic and its ripple effects across the economy and across people's livelihoods, what does this serve as a wake up call for? I hope it serves as a wake up call. You know, if we do if we do our job well, this will be a trial run. But if we do our job amazing, it would be a wake-up call. So I, I hope that it does end up being a wake-up call for, for a lot of issues. And one of them, like you said, is, is centralized systems that rely on really efficient supply chains are, are beautiful works of art. But they also leave us very vulnerable. The less money your community has, even, even more vulnerable. So one of the ones, or one of the related things I hope so, it wakes us up to, is that we really have to be looking at networks and resilience the most effective supply chain doesn't have storage. It doesn't have masks waiting for us, right? The most effective supply chain doesn't empower communities to be able to respond to, to changes and disasters. And nature often doesn't pick the most efficient path because redundancy increases, increases our, our resilience. So I hope it wakes us up to the fact that we need to be paying attention to our neighbors for lots of reasons and not just in these emergencies. We need to work with our neighbors to, to make sure that we have our, our basic needs met, right? I mean, maybe we're not making our flat screen TVs in our community, but our, our water, our food, our ability to get things repaired, our ability to communicate, our ability to have financial transactions and to exchange and trade between each other. We really need to take responsibility of these things because when the system is stressed, if we can't respond, then we're relying on other people to respond, and that could take a while. This really reminds me, one of our recent guests, Jason Bradford of the Post Carbon Institute, he said that cities are touted as an efficient and therefore eco-friendly way to run human civilization. But the result is that we've become energy blind. We're not thinking about the infrastructure needed to get that running water to us, to get that energy to us, to get all the food grown elsewhere to us. And it's also in the name of efficiency that we've homogenized a lot of our food sources and had things like control over our water and energy sources become monopolized. So it seems like just there's a lot of large hidden costs of this superficial efficiency of centralized and monopolized systems. Absolutely. And, and one of the other collateral issues with this is that it's it's much easier to to hide the externalities in the type of system you're describing. So it's easier to hide all the additional waste along the way. Right. When your community is is growing and, and distributing your own food, you're going to notice whatever food went to waste. Right. But when you have centralized food growing, you're not going to see that. I live I live up in Humboldt, like I said, seven months a year. And in here, people can look at a handful of dirt and a handful of soil and see the difference. Right. But but often if you've been part of a system where food just arrives and you have no idea where where it really came from, you don't see the people along the way that might be being having their potential wasted and their health wasted. You don't see the soil being either depleted or regenerated. You don't see the massive amounts of, of waste and, and oil and chemicals that are consumed along the way because it is hidden from us. And 
I also feel like that same blindness has led us to focus more on the what without necessarily looking at the context enough and whether that what even makes sense given the circumstances. So, for example, we might say, you know, organic lettuce is eco-friendly, but if it's grown in a climate-controlled greenhouse with that energy imported from elsewhere and the water for irrigation imported from elsewhere, does that really make sense for where it's being grown? So as we continue to think about our best solutions to address our different challenges going forward, including climate change, what are your thoughts on how understanding context better can help us to better achieve our goals? Well, this is we're now touching on my idealism again. I do think that when people are given choices, they'll generally pick the one that is better for, for the world. But those choices have to be made so that it's not going to make their lives harder. We can't be asking a consumer to do the math on which of these two products is going to be better for the world. So when you have stuff that's being made locally, those things are often easy for a person to answer. They know the farmer that grew it, and then they can just trust that farmer. But when your food is coming from far away, and you, if you knew these strawberries were grown with slave labor, and these strawberries were grown by a family, and they cost about the same, most people will pick the, the, the family one. But all that information is hidden. And now when you talk about embedded energy, and right, like, I'm probably about to say things that make people drift off. <laughs> but when you talk <laughs> about embedded energy, and how many megajoules per gram there is for each for, for these two choices, it becomes more and more boring and harder to, to, to analyze. It's difficult even for scientists to analyze it. I have classes that try to look at for these centralized solutions that try to help people make the best energy choice. For instance, last year we looked at mason jars versus paper cups and plastic cups. The year before that, we looked at bamboo straws versus glass straws versus stainless steel straws. And it took us, it took us months to find out that information and figure out how much energy and carbon was embedded in those products to figure out which one was best. In my opinion, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be our job. It should be the job of the people producing it to say, this is how much, these are the impacts of this product. This is how much energy it took to mine it, to make it, to ship it, to dispose of it, to operate it. And then we could make better decisions. But I don't think we can rely on every person to go out there and try to do that math and that investigative journalism themselves. Right. And I mean, even for the producers, oftentimes it's hard to come up with these numbers, too, because they may have complex supply chains where they mm -hmm. can't even trace a lot of their the origins of their raw materials. Right. And that's so I, I think all, along that whole supply chain, everyone should be and this is pretty <laughs> off topic, but I think that all of them should be responsible for 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 measuring their impacts and being held accountable for them. And then maybe technologies like like blockchain can help carry that supply chain with accountability all the way through to the consumer and then eventually to the end of life for that product. So then I guess the other question would be, is this indicative of the fact that we we obviously need more transparency, but ultimately, what will the numbers reveal that we just need more localized systems? So does it all go back to that? That's kind of my my, my mantra, right? Because I believe that community solutions allow us to, to make the best decisions. But there's, there's a lot of other aspects. We have to get wiser about how we use things. We have to start including externalized costs back into the cost of a product. Because it, it's not really fair for, or reasonable or sound for something like solar power to compete against natural gas 
when you look at all the various externalities. If you if you included those costs, the dollar costs of what we're doing to to our environment, what we're doing to the atmosphere, what we're doing to communities, then something like solar power is just obviously far superior. I mean, it already is it already is now because the costs have come down. But but it should have been 10 and 20 years ago. It should have been the obvious answer. Mm -hmm. So I think that for me, bringing it back to the community is is one of the top ones. Also, including the cost for externalities, having more transparency, I think are, are also big issues. Well, you're simultaneously working on a lot of really cool projects. And the final one of yours that I'd love to touch on is Swale, which is a forage-ready floating food forest around the New York City waterfront. In a city that does have to import a lot of its food, water, and energy from outside of the city, it's kind of like a way to invite people to think about some of these ideas of building local resilience that we just talked about in the heart of the city. So can you talk more about your vision for this project as well as at a larger scale, how we might be able to build more community-based resilience within other dense urban areas like New York City. Yeah, I, I love Swale. And the vision for it is, is something I'd, I'd love to touch on. But first, I'm not the visionary of Swale. The visionary of Swale is Mary Mattingly. She's a visionary artist that I've had the, the pleasure of working with for over a decade now on, on various projects like this. Most of her projects are to inspire and educate and intrigue people about pressing issues like climate change and resilience and where our food comes from. So a decade ago, we built a project called the Water Pod, where we had five artists living on a barge trying to get all their food, energy, and water from the barge itself. And uh, we five months traveled through New York, fantastic success. I think there was 275,000 visitors in person. And then those parts went on to live in museums and, and stuff like that. And so uh, about seven years after that, Mary was looking at it, looking for another another project, learning from that project and some other ones we worked on, like Flockhouse and, and Wetland. And she had encountered that in New York, it's illegal to grow public food for public use. You can't can't do it. In some states, it's legal. In Seattle, it's legal. But in New York, you can't grow public food for public use. But maritime law is different. So she's like, all right, let's just bring it back to the water. What we did is we, we took a 5,000 square foot sand barge and converted it into hills and plants, edible, medicinal, local plants and trees and orchard of local fruit. We go from port to port, spend about a month, month and a half in each spot, and people can come pick for free. They can study about food justice issues. They can learn. They have, we have cooking classes and food dyeing classes. And now that project is, is is in transition, and we'll see what happens this summer. You know, everything is is, is now up in the air. Mm -hmm. So the vision was to inspire people about things like the environment and sea level rise, and also meeting your needs by growing food. It was also to to change the law and to make to make it apparent that this law against growing public food for public use was was ridiculous. I have all types of numbers that I can quote to talk about our success. You know, we had a couple hundred thousand in-person visitors. We had 500 million media impressions. But really, it's the personal stories that impact me. You know, the people that, that reinvigorated their joy of gardening. And also, 
is that the New York Park Department broke ground on a foodway. So public food for public use on public land. And the Park Department is doing it as an experiment based upon swale. They saw how successful it was at, at Concrete Plant Park. And they built it. This is a community where I think 85% of all the food comes through that community and none of it stays. All, right? all the food in the Northeast is coming right through there. This is Hunts Point, right? the packing district. People go and they work in the packing plants. They come home without any of that food. And you're lucky to find a brewed apple at a liquor store. There's more waste transfer stations in this community than there are grocery stores. So there's more places where the waste from other communities comes through and gets transferred to, to landfills. There's more of those than there are grocery stores. Uh, and I think that if you're going to measure the wealth of a community, that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty good measure. So do you think this is something that can be re replicated in a lot of urban dense areas? Where I guess it depends on the laws they have in place for public food grown for the public. So I love public food grown for public use. And I think it can be replicated everywhere with with intelligence and understanding that every community is different and every community has different issues with with waste and with pests and with what plants. So it has to be it has to be community driven and com community selected. But the growing it on a barge part. No, that is silly. Right. We shouldn't be doing it like like uh, reporters would be like, oh, That's my God, just to get around the rules, right? It's to get around the rules. And it's also to inspire people. You know, Mary has this. I, I'm not an artist. Right. But I love working with artists. And Mary knew and she was right now that I've been on it. She knew that that standing on this piece of earth that was bobbing and floating <laughs> would do something to people's brains. And it does when you stand on it and you're surrounded by hills and soil and plants and everything around you is edible and you can just pick everything. And then this constructed city is bobbing in the background. It really does something to your brain. It, 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 that juxtaposition is inspirational. And so in that way, yes, it could be re replicated. But if we have to grow our food on barges in the future, we are doomed. <laughs> it is not a good solution. Right. And I guess not only can it be replicated, not the barge part, but like public food for public use, it's also kind of necessary, right, mm -hmm. to be able to build a truly sustainable, regenerative and resilient future for ourselves. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm, your listeners are probably already familiar. But if you want to have a lot of fun listening to a story about that, check out Ron Finley's TED Talk. He's the just the gangster gardener. He does in, incredible work on that specific issue. Finally, to wrap up for our listener to have some takeaway points, what action steps would you recommend they take to begin supporting distributed resources where they are and building some of their own community-based resilience? I love that question. I'm assuming that some of your listeners are already doing that. And I'd love to maybe give some advice to, to them first, which is make sure if you're doing that work that you're setting really clear boundaries with, with yourself and with the people you're working with. And maybe I'm saying this more for me than for anyone else, but you got to remember that we want you in the, we want you in this for your whole life. We want to have that, the impact, that long-term impact. And we also want your, your wisdom. And so when these issues seem so pressing, it's easy to give up our, like our whole life to it, to stop sleeping, right? And to stop having our, our own separate fun. But all of that stuff is critical. So I, I hope if you are already doing this work that you're, that you're staying healthy because we want you to stay in. And for those people who aren't or maybe people who want but they don't know where to start, just just get started. Don't work, don't wait for the perfect solution. 
find an organization that's already working locally and support them with whatever know-how or knowledge or presence you have. Like a lot of times I'm coming in, I'm supporting as a hardcore technologist, helping them size all of the different energy, water and food systems. But other times I'm coming and bringing snacks, right? And, and sometimes I think that that might be the best thing I can do, right? It's just like come with snacks. And so my advice, if you want to work on these issues is to get involved and to pick a local organization that's already doing it. If you have a great idea, find somebody who's already doing something similar and, and, and bring your presence to it instead of just starting another brand new thing. Then once you've been in for a while, you can see if you want to, if you want to start your, your own brand new thing. Finally, all of us can, there's always ways that we can be buying local more and supporting local more and just looking at all of our choices and being like, Oh, how could I, how could I do this in a way that still feels easy and convenient to me, but maybe even brings me more joy. Like, for instance, joining a community-supported agriculture where you get to go pick some of your own vegetables. They have a box waiting for you. You pay at the beginning of the year, and you take some of the risk with the farmer. We all are strong people Working hard every day and night Trying to make the world peaceful And we won't give up without a fight We're gonna help those who are in need Yes, we believe they can succeed Overcoming obstacles every day You'll be okay, you'll guide the way Don't matter big or small, we're gonna do it all That's who we are, yeah, we'll make it far, yeah What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Well, first of all, I got to plug one of one of the organizations I'm part of, which is Appropedia. I'm the president of that foundation. We share sustainable solutions between people. And we've been we have a wiki of sustainable solutions been edited 400,000 times by people all around the world. So I love that site, but I am very involved. Another one I've been looking at for inspiration every week is a group called GP. V is in Victor S N G O. And this is a group that I had the incredible pleasure of working with in Uttar Pradesh, India, two summers ago with a colleague of, colleague of mine, Mino Rana. And in this community, we formed a community group together and they, every week they post updates of what they've accomplished. And it's, it's incredible the way that the community members are transforming their community, especially when it comes to waste and water issues, is just beautiful. So that's one of my go-tos for like, ah, uh, I need my inspiration for the week. <laughs> what do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? <laughs> so one, of, it's like a two-sided thing. One thing I remind myself is that I'm not very powerful. I remind myself that to stay healthy, to be able to go to sleep. I'm not that powerful alone, right? But then I also remind myself that we're in this together. That really it keeps me inspired. I feel very lucky. And for, for the people out there who are thinking about going and getting involved but feeling overwhelmed, one of the other benefits of being involved is I never wonder why I stay optimistic. It's really easy for me to stay optimistic because my, my, my news feed is filled with all the people that I'm doing work with to fix the problems. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Oh, yeah, going to sleep. 
Very important. Mm -hmm. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Any upcoming projects you'd like to share? Yeah. So there's the, there's the new book. There should be a Kickstarter out on that soon, which is To Catch the Sun. So it's about making small-scale solar projects. And then we're launching a new business competition for Northern California businesses working on regenerative agriculture, water, and energy issues. It's called the Awesome Business Competition. And we're going to have resources available for people anywhere in the world to learn entrepreneurship that comes from the heart and comes from community and values worthwhileness and justice. And this will all be linked in our show notes that our listener can check out at greendreamer.com. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? The people that, uh, that I get to work with, e- each of them, every day there's, there's some interaction I have that's like, oh yeah, this person's going to save the world together with all of us. Uh, you know, yesterday, Gregorio reached out to me from Las Malvinas Dos and... I don't know how much money he makes, but he's in a community where people make under a dollar a day. And every day he's working to make his community better. I can list, I can list dozens or hundreds of people just like that. And, and every single one of them makes me so hopeful. Well, we touched on Lonnie's free ebook earlier, To Catch the Rain. Again, you can head to www.tocatchtherain.org to download that free ebook. And his other project, Apropedia, will be at apropedia.org. That's A P P R O P E D I A.org. You can also follow him on Instagram and LinkedIn at Lonnie Grafman and on Facebook at Lonnie G. Lonnie, thank you so much for joining us today and for all that you do and continue to inspire. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I think it's just that together, we got this. Oh.